Welcome to Women in Trade, a podcast for up-and-coming professionals like you in the field of international trade. Kelly Kemock is your guide on this journey, an accomplished lawyer and trade compliance consultant who's passionate about helping young women navigate this complex field, equipping you with the tools and resources you'll need to pursue an exciting and meaningful career. You'll hear candid interviews with other successful female leaders and benefit from their experience. It's time to build the career of your dreams. Here's your host, Kelly Kemock. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for joining me. Um, today, on today's episode, we have Mary Breedy, who works at Thompson Reuters. Um, Mary, what's your title at Thompson Reuters? My title at Thompson Reuters is I'm part of the corporate proposition team, and my role specifically is uh, titled Customer Insight. Seems very broad. Maybe we can start at the beginning. If we start with how you built your career how you got to where you are today, and then what exactly that broad title encompasses and how it falls within um, trade compliance. Sure. Um, Okay, so how did I start? Um, I started in global trade compliance accidentally. You know, and it's funny, I talk to a lot of people who say, I didn't choose this as a path, it chose me. And that would definitely be how I got into trade compliance. Um, my background originally started as a master scheduler and uh, scheduler and project manager. And I was brought into a very large corporation out in Silicon Valley uh, to help close a customs audit. That was in the 90s, Uh, so I just dated myself for anybody listening, (laughs) and um, it was interesting because uh, customs, at the time when audits were done, it wasn't, you know, where we had these tight time frames that customs has imposed upon themselves to complete uh, what today we call assessments. At the time, they were called CATs, which is a compliance or customs... um, team that would come in from rig audit and they would uh, literally never leave and you would get these large sample sizes and then they would increase sample sizes and the company I was brought in to assist had uh, frustrated complaints about the fact that Customs was changing the auditor, so they were starting over. Then the sample sizes were increasing. So, you know, I mean, net-net, what was happening is they were trying to tighten the time frame. And they were trying to compress the inquiries. The other piece is when Customs historically did these audits, they were on site. Um, And in the case of this audit, they had been on site already three years at this point. It was like a never-ending audit. So I was brought in specifically to keep Customs on track, keep Customs aware of what we'd already delivered and not deliver it again. So, you know, there were some processes that were put in place. But the interesting thing was I learned a lot. I learned what a 99 uh, chapter was going to represent as it relates to could I go after chapter 98 or 99 and still do drawback and still avoid paying duties. I mean, there were a lot of compliance issues that could be encountered in, you know, conducting business. 
um, it was country of origin markings and classifications and, um, you know, valuation audits, what would be the compliance improvement plans if there were any. So, you know, having that exposure for this long-term audit, uh, I learned a lot and I was like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. I'm learning more than I would on normal, you know, uh, scheduling or project management type projects. The interesting thing was the result of the time frame of this audit and then customs coming back in to do the focused assessment also hindered around what was going on with 9-11 because that's when they introduced focused assessments instead of CAT audits and that's when we started getting introduced into supply chain security. So it's a long roundabout way of saying here's how I got into this, literally falling into it, falling in love with it and then expanding my career uh, with being blessed with going to corporations and heading up trade groups for global activities and literally closing customs audits around the world and you know setting up new businesses um, you know setting up new strategies in different countries so I hope that answers your question I know it took a long time but I have had a long career no, that's exactly the the point is to to see all of these women in leadership got to where they are today differently. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so interesting because you don't have to follow one path in this industry. Right. And for someone like me who we, I just want to learn everything, you can. You right. can go for a while and, yeah. and do imports. You can go for a while and do exports. Like you can do that. It doesn't look like you're jumping around essentially. I don't know. Do you feel the That's same correct. way where, you know, you can always change up your career and stay within the same kind of path? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a good point that you just made, because if you look at my career path, I've jumped industries and, um, you know, we talked about what I, what my title is today. It's very obscure, but basically, you know, I've gone from high tech, I've gone to consumer electronics, I've gone to apparel and footwear, um, global expansion through those uh, different industries. Um, you know, you learn new terminology, you still have the same acronyms. And then I went over to chemicals and what I'm doing today is imparting that knowledge that I've had through those different industries, through process improvements, through audits, through, you know, understanding how these different industries have to navigate the different regulatory requirements. I mean, I made a comment to you earlier is we loosely use terms like regulatory and compliance and even trade, which could have so many connotations. And really, you know, if you take a look at what we've done in our industry is I've been able to stay in global trade compliance, not a loose term, but, you know, strictly around the activities involved in importing and exporting and auditing and, you know, self-auditing and health checking and process improvements and, you know, implementing software or solutions or efficiencies and applying different methodologies all in helping corporations move product around the world. Right. So when you talk about terms, you used the term global trade compliance. So trade compliance and global trade compliance is a narrower term than international trade, I think. That's correct. Okay. 
So what would you say encompasses international trade as a whole versus just the compliance piece? Well, if you're looking at uh, international trade, you know, corporations even look at that differently. That could be the tax implications. That could be currency exchanging. That could be how you set up your, your structure for, you know, how you pay your taxes or, you know, where you incorporate international trade, um, of itself could just be the financial aspect and not necessarily the movement or storage of goods or trading services. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I narrow in on how I view international trade in an operational environment, that's when you start looking at how a company does business around the world, which, you know, in, in the movement of goods, uh, trade compliance, folks uh, in global trade management have to understand how the tax aspects work, how transfer pricing works, uh, how interest at works. Uh, we have to understand how, you know, fat works, value-added tax, uh, GST, right? Goods and service taxes. So there's different taxations or financial implications that moving product around the world, I want to say, bleeds into the uh, trade compliance arena. And if you're a trade compliance person, as you said earlier, you know, I can stay in this career, but I can, I can narrowly focus or broadly focus in different areas and still be in trade. I think we do ourselves a disservice if we're not embracing understanding the cross, you know, functional and cross organizational teams or understanding how our service providers have to manage our business or support our business or how our tax group is, you know, filing taxes or or needing to understand how we're moving freight so they can file interest out reports. Or our transfer pricing team is, you know, doing quarterly adjustments, either upward or downward adjustments um, for, you know, the profit and loss statements for related party movement, international movement of goods. So there's a lot of like, I embrace it because one like you, I like to learn, but it helps us be successful. And it also helps us make uh, informed decisions um, or provide guidance to the business. Whereas I see trade compliance uh, folks are headed is we're being tapped into a lot more right now to help with strategy discussions, uh, determine and um, actually interpret or decipher what trade wars means, you know, evaluate scenario planning opportunities. We're actually finally getting a voice at the table. So if you don't embrace understanding all these different things, you know, what are the free trade agreements and, you know, what are protectionism measures looking like in my supply chain? And if I move my sourcing here, what does that look like? Can I help the company look at tariff engineering. I mean, there's a there's a lot of opportunities for us to provide value, and so embracing change and embracing learning, like you said, Kelly, I think is critical for our success, but our company's success. If we're going to define things in our conversation today, we 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 define international trade as um, everything that is encompassing doing business in mm-hmm. a foreign country. Um, 
whether that's actually selling goods, physical goods or services. It includes the finance group, accounting group, the transportation group, even the IT group sometimes, I guess. That's correct. But Sourcing, it, procurement, yeah. Everything. A lot of groups. Yeah, every so, group. So then if we narrow down, like, our role in the business is trade compliance. And so what we have, what our roles would be is to make sure that the company complies with all of these rules. When I first started in the industry, I recognized that, uh, so I was at a corporation in their trade compliance department, and we were looked at as the the break. We always mm-hmm. put a... Clock in the wheel. Yes. We always stopped it, like, no, you can't ship there. Hey, have you checked out this? customer for restricted party screenings like we were always slowing things down and I like the way that you were explaining that we need to kind of flip the script and be more involved in the business the more that we know about the other aspects we can actually assist rather than just be the break yeah you know it's funny I had gone through an interview process with an executive years ago and you know her comment to me and she was the C-suite executive is the trade department is constantly telling me no. Why are you different? And I just looked at her and I said, you know what? Our job is not to say no. Our job is to try to help you make the right decisions so that you can manage your business. Our role is to help you move product around the world in a compliant fashion. And I said, but saying no sometimes is an aspect of the decision process. But the way I do this is I'm going to provide you with the risk of not adhering to the word no. And then you make that informed decision. And I said, the company should always be risk, have risk aversion as a top priority. Um, And I said, but sometimes risk is interpreted in different ways and people want to take the risk. I said, from a compliance standpoint, for regulatory compliance for imports and exports, oftentimes you're making uninformed decisions. So my goal is to help you make informed decisions. And And I think that that's what we're supposed to be doing now. Now, do we have to say no? Absolutely. I mean, I've said no to some of the most creative decisions from people that, you know, you got to give them kudos for creativity, but it's still wrong. And, you know, so that is our role to also not be the police, but be sometimes the voice of reason. When you use the term regulatory, you are Mm -hmm. contrasting regulatory with compliance. So what do you mean by that? Good. Yeah. And remember, I said we use these terms loosely. So for me, regulatory compliance in the trade environment is adhering to the the regulations per country, right? So in the United States, you know, we have different regulatory uh, arms that we have to adhere to. Our job is to, one, understand which regulatory arms like in the United States, Food and Drug, Federal Communications Commission, there's different regulatory arms that are involved in the import and export and store process. And so it's understanding who those regulatory arms are and then adhering to their regulatory requirements. And oftentimes the regulatory requirements, they're not just nice to have. It'd be great if you did this. I mean, there's there's absolutely uh, implications if you do not follow the regulatory requirements in each country based upon what you're moving. I mean, it's 
we go back to that interpretation. Who who am I impacted by? How do I impact them? How do I adhere to what needs to be done according to the law? I mean, there's there's a lot of different regulatory arms we have to adhere to. And then there's the, you know, implied regulations that we have when we're importing and exporting uh, product, you know, the classifications, whether it's licensing or harmonized schedule. Um, there's a, the implications of how we assign that is going to determine what those regulatory arms are. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like how we're defining this because it, there is such a, a broad usage of different terms. And mm-hmm. I, I like how we're kind of narrowing it down to explain each piece of what we do. So when you talk about regulatory, we're talking like, FDA regulations, we're talking about any sort of USDA implications yep. for, for pro- specific product type regulations, as right. opposed to the regulations that apply to all products, like you have to file an entry, you have to have the classification, all of that. Right. And, and if you look at, you know, you were talking about how you have, you know, looked at your career imports. So if we start with like U.S. imports, we have different, you know, requirements for U.S. imports than we do to exports, but you might have the same commodity and you're trying to bring, let's just say a t-shirt, you're trying to bring a t-shirt into, um, China, right? Well, China has an entirely different process as it relates to quality. Anything that touches your skin, um, you know, it's going to go through China inspection and quarantine. But then electronics coming into the United States, we don't necessarily have import licensing requirements like we have on the export side, mostly because of our technology. But that same commodity, like a universal routing switch, right? you'll go, well, what's that? Okay. So let's just say, um, a universal routing switch is used in my, um, sound systems. Okay. Sound systems inside a store. Okay. I have no import requirement. I have very little related to any export licensing requirement, but gosh darn it, if I bring it into China, I have an import license requirement, and, and I'm now also dealing with MOFCOM. So, um, you know, being able to interpret the beginning, the end, if it has to be re-exported, what does that look like, then what does it look like on the other end, what are my requirements, because guess what, those all require effort and they require time frames. And so the time frames, you know, one of the things we're doing in trade two is we have to back up those time frames and say, yeah, you're not going to have it next week, but you can have it in three weeks or yeah, next week is fine because I only have to do this. And, you know, I, I worked with a company when we were in consumer electronics and, you know, we had licenses that sometimes took a couple of months because we were sending them to embargo countries, but because they had humanitarian efforts tied to them, we, we were allowed to export, but we had very strong constraints on the licensing that we had to obtain just to move those commodities for humanitarian efforts. So, you know, it's like, it's so broad, but it's so much fun, right? Because what other industry is constantly in flux and constantly, um, you know, changing. And, and then if you're, 
in this business, like you said, I started here, I went to there. Think about it. You get to learn all new stuff, you know, and you don't lose what you've already learned. You just keep adding to your knowledge base. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. It it gets me excited about my job because what you were just talking about, those kinds of examples are what makes it so interesting because it's like a puzzle. You have to figure out like this starting point. Then you got to bring in transportation because the product's going to move somewhere. Then you have to figure out how to get it into the country. And then, you know, what it's completely different on the inbound of that country. It's, it's just so interesting. And you're right. Right. It's never two, two processes the same. uh, And and let's not forget all the protectionism we're dealing with with right now right i mean there years ago you couldn't bring in china textiles into taiwan and then there were certain hts's we had to worry about that's protectionism is it forbidden or is it allowed on a quota base is it allowed um through an anti-dumping environment i mean look at what we're doing with the section you know 242s and 302s in the united states i mean that's the biggest uh, concern that companies are navigating right now is what does this mean to me? Does my FTZ that I set up years ago, is that going to help me with these new, um, you know, China implications, mm-hmm. um, you know, for the, t- the trade wars that we're dealing with? I mean, it's kind of interesting. I met with a couple companies last week that they're like, I'm just moving everything to Mexico. And I said, well, that I don't think that's what the intent is. The intent is to look at some potential, you know, domestic sourcing. And they're like, well, we could possibly do that, but quality takes time and might be easier to move it to Mexico, but now I don't get to qualify for this. And so it's, you know, it's that interpreting what the protectionism might look at, like, you know, I mean, years ago when I was, you know, we were looking at potentially going into Brazil at the textile and footwear company I was at, you know, we, it's a very large brand that was opening stores and and it, it made its own uh, sandals and flip-flops, but going into Brazil at the time, of course they have Havanas, right? So there was an anti-dumping aspect to bringing in the sandal that would have been $13.50 US dollars per unit. And it was like, whoa, that just like kicks out the ability to bring in one of our brands into Brazil. And so, you know, these are the types of things that companies are dealing with trade groups are trying to interpret and decipher and and share information be part of the strategy it's kind of it's kind of a very volatile fun environment right now if you had 30 seconds or less to describe what you do yeah today what do I do um I've taken all of that knowledge that I've used in all of my career companies so far and now I'm on the uh consulting side for Thomson Reuters. So customer insight is if they were going to go in and sell software platforms for global trade management, um, they would be selling it to me. So I often, you know, meet with a client and just help them ascertain what their risks are and how software could help them. That's more than 30 seconds, but it's as close as I can get. (laughs) It's fine. I was joking with someone who I was talking with uh, who wasn't in 
the trade compliance field and they asked me what I did and I was like I don't I don't even know how do I even describe what I do and so <laughs> at some points I answer like oh I do you know import and export law and that sounds really boring and very vague right um and then other times it's like oh okay so the movement of goods across borders like that's how I'd explain it but I didn't know maybe if you had a better elevator pitch of of how to answer that yeah it's kind of interesting I mean some of the elevator pitches you know I've worked with uh because we're all always working on our elevator pitches but you know I mean my latest elevator pitch is uh, and I'm going to read it to you is uh, due to the constantly changing international trade regulations and the resulting tax and compliance requirements um, my my goal is to help you interpret what that looks like increase your efficiencies help you with reducing your risk in your global trade operations. So that's how I define what I do to companies or for companies. And then often um, I'm also able to take their feedback and influence the change to our software platform to help them do their job better. So, you know, something you were involved in that we're really working on is what we call the scenario planning, the what ifs. What if I change my sourcing? What if I uh, change my harmonized tariff? You know, what does that do to my free trade agreement? And what happens, you know, with my FTZ with all of the trade war situations going on right now? You know, that's not an elevator pitch. My elevator pitch was at the beginning of this, (laughs) but the discussion that I have with them really falls in line with the additional, you know, uh, commentary I just gave to you. Yeah. Let's talk about technology then. That is solution provider for companies that move goods across borders and that right. encompasses software. Yeah, I would just say it's GTM software. So, yeah. Trade so, management software. Yeah. So import and export and free trade agreements and uh, all these different types of aspects of international trade that your software would automate um, for importers and exporters and and that's primarily what you're looking to set up with these types of companies yeah I would say my role is a little little bit different so from a customer insight role um, generally I'm just you know customer facing um, and oftentimes the credibility comes because I've sat in their shoes and so I'm listening to what are your pain points? What are you trying to solve? Oftentimes, you know, they're reaching out to us because they've either suffered an event or they think they're going to have an event or they're just looking for efficiencies, right? Not enough headcount. We just can't keep up with it. We're acquiring more companies. I mean, we have some risk areas. We don't have visibility. So a lot of times I'm going in and just like allowing them to go through the therapy of discussing their pain points. And then um, I have an uncanny knack and probably because of my Six Sigma training and having sat in their shoes and done a lot of like forward thinking strategic activities at the companies I've headed up trade, um, I'm often able to you know assess their risk and I I do that in what we call the failure mode effect analysis is what's the severity what's the potential of the impact of your risk I can make recommendations now I don't always make recommendations for software do I think software is a way to go absolutely and it's not just efficiency sake that I make that recommendation but you know as trade people we don't want to do the day-to-day excel 
Excel spreadsheets and Word documents. I always tell people that our biggest competitor is uh, Excel spreadsheets because people want to provide tactical thinking and strategic direction for the operations. So when you have automation, those efficiencies immediately come into play. You reduce your time spent. I'm not saying Excel is going to be gone completely, but you know, I, I do make recommendations for oftentimes, you know, when I look at their processes and say, okay, you have overlap, you have redundancy, you have processes that are not being followed, you have people doing things differently, and from a future state perspective, here's how technology could could streamline your process, give you the record keeping that you need, uh, give you the visibility to the changes in the ERP environment. And, you know, so oftentimes I bring that, but, but let's talk about the new technology that's starting to be integrated in these things Mm -hmm. to make jobs easier. Let's look at artificial intelligence, right? You know, if you're classifying products and you're consistently classifying the same thing over and over and over. Wouldn't it be nice if your tool was learning your behaviors? You know, that's computer learning. And then making the recommendations to you um, through not like the computer learning is going to recognize what you've been doing. But the artificial intelligence is going to start learning your behaviors and it's going to start making those recommendations to you. Um, So the new technology that's out there, you know, I recently spoke in DC and somebody said, but am I going to lose my job? Mm -hmm. If if I implement technology, am I going to lose my job? And, you know, I, I looked at them and I said, look, technology has been in the supply chain for over 20 years. You're already advancing. I mean, I, when I started out now I'm really going to date myself. We didn't have computers. We weren't really using Excel spreadsheets, right? We were using boards on our desks. And so what I tell them is you need to stay up on the technology. And what are we doing with technology now? Look at your supply chain, what it's been doing in 20 years. It's been learning how to interpret and analyze data. We're not losing our jobs. Our jobs are changing and we have to embrace those changes. It makes us it makes us not only desirable, but it makes us, you know, employees that are marketable. If you have these tools and you've been using these software platforms that are advanced and best practices, you are now making yourself more marketable because you can interpret data, you know how to deal with big data, you are, you know, creating platforms and processes that are utilizing software and, you know, you're leveraging off of, let's just say, what Customs and Border Protection is looking at with blockchain right now. They're testing it as it relates to free trade agreements and they're starting to look at it in other areas and now we know that Merrick is looking at the, the blockchain as it relates to looking how documents are moving around the world. If you think about, you know, the hundreds of documents 
that you are utilized just for one import transaction and how many handoffs that looks at having a blockchain ability to open the block, close the block, define who has access to the block, date code it, you know, signature and enforce it. I mean, these are different technologies that are starting to be integrated in our supply chains. And so we need to learn and understand what these are. Mm-hmm. Because they are going to be part of our, our daily work. Right. And I find that people who are questioning the benefits of technology, I feel like their goals are different. If your goal is to stay in the same position, filling out the same Excel spreadsheet, and doing the same thing that you've always been doing, yes, technology is going to take your job. because yeah, it's going to pass you up. Yeah. But if, if your goal is to expand your career, keep learning, do more, actually make business impacts and not just fill out an Excel sheet, then technology should excite you. And that should be like, yes, this technology can take away the horrible part of my job where I just fill in details on an Excel spreadsheet and I get to do the more exciting things. And so it, it all depends on how you look at it and what your goals are because technology has absolutely taken over jobs. But guess what? Your job didn't exist before. That's correct. <laughs> you know, it, cre- correct. it also creates a lot of jobs as well. Well, and I think there's still room for people who want to continue to do things the way they always have. Some people are more comfortable with that. But what I'm starting to see is there's still room for that. But the advancement opportunities, the, the let's be realistic, the money involved with it isn't going to advance as quickly. It's okay if you want to stay in that. But what I'm starting to also see is technology is going to take over. And if you don't jump on board, um, yeah, not everybody wants to impart artificial intelligence, but I'm telling you the majority of companies I talk to, they want predictive analysis. So you need to be able to interpret the data. When we talk about technology, the same way that, you know, we were defining trade compliance, we have to define technology as well, I think, because we, you and I were talking about two different technologies. You you are um, excited about and talking about, um, like, machine learning and AI predictions right. and all of that. Uh, and correct. where I was kind of focusing on was more of the automation, where sure. where the computer doesn't have an algorithm to figure things out on its own. You have to tell the computer what you want it to do. Basic fill-in-the-field automation saves countless hours for a company. Right. So um, when we talk about technology, it doesn't have to be that technology where people fear that robots take over and all of that. Right. It can just <laughs> be this like process automation and efficiencies and data. Let's talk a little bit about data. So AI prediction needs data to make those predictions, but there can also be predictions done by humans. You don't need that AI piece, but only if you have this data. And everyone uses the term big data. And basically, it's just that we can collect a lot of data right now. Um, right. So let me know your opinion on, you know, data management as, as you know, under the umbrella of technology, um, sure. just data management itself. How important is that? Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about data, but my famous term is bad data in is bad data out, right? So we when, when we talk about data, 
it has to be usable data, right? It has to be good data. And so, um, you know, if we go back to, you know, I've been talking about the different exciting, um, you know, ways that data is going to be manipulated or data is going to be thinking or data is going to be resulting or data is going to be predicting. I think the most important thing is to go back to the automation itself, the tools themselves. Like if you think about the day-to-day activity of a trade compliance person, um, you know, let's just say you have one headcount, right? They're doing it all. They're, they're classifying goods, they're licensing goods, they're creating documents for importing and exporting, which could be the commercial invoice or the pro forma invoice. It could be the helping the traffic logistics team create the packing list. And, you know, I mean, there, there's so many things that, you know, people are doing in their day to day just to make sure that, um, product is moving. And then, you know, it's worrying about the compliance aspects of it. Did I get the quantities correct? Is the country of origin reflected accurately? Did I classify accurately? Um, Is the value correct? I mean, there's so many different data elements just to make sure that that is done. It's, it starts to become daunting. um, When you think about all those different elements of the activity, well, those elements are data. Right. Those are those are data points that are being pushed from one place to another. So when I said, am I doing it correctly? That's the is it bad data or is it good data that I'm pushing from one place to the other? Because if it's an export, you have bad data on this this side on the export side, chances are your data is bad on the import side. So it's you know, it's the tools that are out there. One are making that process more efficient. It's, you know, am I taking information out of the ERP and it's plugging in because of the purchase order or the sales order? And is it then creating a commercial invoice? And is it taking out of the product information in the ERP, the product master, the description, the classification? Is it identifying the country of origin? I mean, those are different things that are, you know, going on. So when I look at, you know, data, data could be an automotive industry bill of material for a free trade agreement. Well, we know how many hundreds of line items that could be. That could also include, you know, the classifications of those goods, the sourcing. We know they multi-source, right? So there's so much data that they're managing today in their bill of material just to take advantage of that one free trade agreement for that one import entry, which includes all of the validations and the certifications. So, you know, when, when you start thinking of the process itself, the potential to automate it, but then the validation of the accuracy of the information, because I tell everybody, you're not doing yourself or your company justice if you're not constantly health checking. If you're not validating that what I said it should be, it is, and it was, even if it's wrong, it was accurately moved from one end to the other. And then I'm looking at, well, did I do it right to begin with? I mean, there has to be that health check process. So what I'm starting to see is, you know, automation is recognizing anomalies of accuracy and pointing out the anomalies. I call that exception-based management. It's like, you know, it's, it's looking at what it, 
what you said it should be, what it was, and then it goes, oh, but this data element was off. So, you know, when, when I look at the, the normal process of, you know, moving product or storing product, there's so many different parts of it. And when I talk about data, it's the movement of those data elements, those elements of trade-related activity. And let's not forget the supporting evidence, right? Mm-hmm. Why did I make the decision? What were the documents to support it? What? How does that tie to the transaction? Does it tie back to the, you know, payment process? I mean, there's there's a lot of little little pieces and niches involved in this. Mm-hmm. So that that last piece was uh, record keeping, right? Like you absolutely you need to make sure that the process was done correctly, but then you also need to make sure that you have the ability to prove it was done correctly when customs yeah. knocks on the door. Well, and not just when customs knocks on the door, but internal audit knocks on the door, governance knocks on the door, but you know, it's like, it's like dirty laundry, right? If you, if you stay up on it, it doesn't become a mountain, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I had teenagers at one point and it always was a mountain and then they would, it would be daunting. So I'm always telling everybody, stay consistent on doing your health checks. Take a look at, you know, weekly, monthly, determine what that process looks like. You know, if, if you know risk or anomalies, increase your sample sizing, but you should always be validating that you're doing to the best of your ability through the due diligence process of making sure it's done correctly. I feel like one of the biggest benefits of technology is that record keeping piece, because that, in my experience, is what Record keeping is what creates all of the paperwork, <laughs> all of the boring part of our jobs, like yeah. record keeping, making sure that you have a copy of everything, making sure you have, you know, uh, details about the product itself, making sure you have, you're checking all these boxes, like that's the boring part of our job. Finding the puzzle pieces for each transaction is the interesting part, like we talked about, but the record yeah. keeping is so boring to me, and so technology is really exciting because it creates so many more data points and records than we could ever keep right um doing a a paper filing system or something like that right and then but it also ties it to the transaction right whereas i mean if you've gone through customs audits the worst part is trying to find the records so if you can't find the records right then it takes forever and the worst thing you want to do in a customs audit is keep asking for extensions because you need to find your records. Um, I was at a company where we had to recreate records. We had been inquired by the government and it was a five-year previous time frame. It was a couple hundred records. Well, guess what? Freight forwarders had changed and were no longer in business five years later. And so going back to a company that no longer exists, if I asked them to be my record keeper, guess what? We didn't have the records. And then oftentimes if you change, you know, providers, they'll charge you for the records. Uh, Records can be in boxes. If you sold off the company where the records go. I mean, I've gone through every scenario of, you know, uh, clue related game of where are the records where are the records and then even if you maintain good records you know one one thing i have found by auditing companies when i go in and audit them is you know you might 
have, let's just say, an import entry number or an export uh, transaction number, but your accounting department is not going to code according to the numbers that are relevant to you. They're going to code what's relevant to them, and it might be based upon either an invoice number, it could be a payment uh, general ledger number. So, you know, being able to pull your records for a customs audit is a daunting task. Um, I've talked to companies where I help them build their ROIs to pursue getting funding for uh, automation. And the biggest thing they wanted to do was be able to pull the records to provide their customer with free trade agreement documentation so that their customer could pursue the advantages of claiming a free trade agreement. Well, they couldn't even give them the documents because they didn't know where the records were to support validating that the country of origin was accurate for what they needed. You know, so the records being maintained in these solutions is reducing the time spent on finding the documents, but it's also maintaining the documents so that way you can be you know better providers to your customers you know and let's let's face it you know uh, bottom line dollars in not having to produce documents or go find documents or hire people to help you you know find documents there there's a better way to save money and utilize that money in different ways there's two more topics that I wanted to sure. touch on. I wanted to ask about your advice regarding mentoring and from both, you know, the person looking for a mentor's perspective and then also someone who is new to mentoring, uh, which I'm asking for myself because people have been reaching out to me, you know, what do I do? How do I start my career? Um, and I don't know what advice to give them. So what would yeah. you, um, first of all, what, how would you advise setting up a mentoring relationship? And then second of all, how do you advise somebody who wants to build a career? Sure. Um, I would say the first thing I always look for in a mentor and the most important thing is what is their influence Either if, if we're in the same company, I'm looking for somebody who can influence and remove roadblocks for me if, if I'm asking them to be my mentor. You know, and in the best mentor I had was a gentleman at a company, and he absolutely made effort to meet with me. Now, I think in the mentor relationship, the mentee should always schedule these. It should be, you know, set up as, you know, a confidence type of thing. It's not going to like, oh, if I share something, you know, I'm going to get fired. There should, there should always be like an agenda involved in the process. Like, you know, this week I, I, would really like to talk to you about, uh, can you introduce me to somebody in the international tax group? I want to talk to them about transfer pricing. So this person should be able to, you know, influence your career path. They should be able to help your career path expand. They should introduce you to people and they should be able to remove roadblocks for you. So I think it's important to identify how, what type of you know, persona would I choose? I haven't always chosen somebody within global trade management. I've had mentors in legal. I've had them in operations. I've had them in sourcing. I've had them in procurement. I've had attorneys, trade attorneys, which are not part of the corporation, 
Um, I've had outside mentors that I've worked with in the past. So I think define what you, what is important to you. Those to me were the most important things. The first meeting a mentor-mentee, uh, whether I'm the mentor or the mentee, um, I always like to ensure that there's ground rules that we both agree to. Like we're not going to discuss or we're going to agree to meet on these dates, you know, the, these types of things. Uh, ground rules are important. And then, you know, the agenda. And, and and I think the most important thing is consistency. If, if you know, don't just call on them when you need help, right? I also find in a mentor-mentee relationship is, but then how can I help you when I'm a mentee? Not just as a mentor, how can I help you? As a mentee, is there anything that I can assist you with? Absolutely. I love that you pointed out that mentors can be outside of your chosen career path. And that is mm-hmm. so applicable to trade compliance because we were just talking about how knowing accounting, knowing transfer pricing, knowing yep. transportation rules, they're all going to help you apply the tra- trade compliance regulatory restrictions to their field. And so if you have right. a mentor that's, that is going to teach you things like that outside of trade compliance, and then you can apply it, that, that just makes your knowledge so much more well-rounded than anyone else. Well, and I did that, um, you know, out in Silicon Valley is I was very fascinated after September 11th. I mean, I had always been interested in supply chain security, right? We're protecting commodities at the time because, you know, we don't want pilferage or we don't want at the time we were worried about drugs being introduced into our supply chain. Forget dirty bombs after 9-11 or terrorist types of situations. So I was very fascinated with that. And you know, I had the head of supply chain security at the company. Um, I asked him to be a mentor and I wanted to learn. And, you know, so I got to go on site visits and, you know, who would have thought that I cared where camera placement was or where the loading docks were, how high the fence was, but I really started getting curious about that. Well, then, you know, I was in charge of supply chain security with Global Trade Compliance at a company I was at because they just felt, oh, well, this fits. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to embrace this. And I actually got really good about it. I mean, it was like, (laughs) you know, I was coming up with processes of don't engage, just observe. And and what do you mean we just got hijacked? And, you know, sending in investigators into the country to find our laptops and finding out that our laptops were on the desks of the police department. You know, I was like, oh, okay, well, I know what happened to them. You know, and and learning about insurance policies, I would have never embraced it, but I'm so glad I did because now we look at, you know, the supply chain compliance programs that are out there. They're not just about physical security any longer. They're also incorporating, you know, adding in the, the trade compliance aspect of you know, the self-assessments and getting, you know, ratings for your import-export compliance activity. And they're making that part of the supply chain compliance, which is including security and trade-related activities. So had I not asked for that mentor, I wouldn't have learned as much as I did and been on the cutting edge of what's going on in supply chain compliance. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I also love the idea of having a mentor outside of trade compliance because if you are doing one particular job and you want to do more, you're not happy where you're at, so you're looking for a different job, or you want to do something specific, you, you're not going to learn something more from your current job. You have to learn that something more from elsewhere. Yeah, but I would take it one step further, too. Like in the mentor-mentee relationship, don't just go in to learn. Go in and ask to do. Take a project and say, can I be on a project? And, you know, work with them through a short-term project because it, it's always great to have what I want to call the theory of learning. Oh, this is great. I know the terms. I understand it. But if you don't actually do it, you don't have the practical, right? So I've always in the mentor-mentee relationship, if I'm the mentee, I ask for a project, a short-term project. And I don't necessarily have to be the leader of the project, but could I participate in a project that's going on? Because you're going to learn more that way. And as a mentor, I will find a project to assign, just say, look, Look, if you're serious about learning, I have this project going on. I don't think you're ready to head it up or you're ready to head it up, but I'd really like you to participate because I think it's going to help you learn. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for people just starting their career? The, the problem with trade compliance is that there is no major in trade compliance. There's no, I mean, there was a couple of classes at my law school that I was able to take, which, which got me interested in trade compliance, but it's just not everywhere. And so if someone uh, is like, hey, this is super interesting. How do I get into it? I have an accounting degree or I have a law degree. All of those backgrounds are in trade compliance, but how do you make that leap from your education into experience? Yeah, I think that's interesting, and I'll tell you an interesting story. So yesterday, out of the blue, I met a gentleman who, for all intent and purposes, it had nothing to do with work, but he asked me how I got into trade compliance. He said, I have been trying so hard to get an entry-level position in supply chain security, and I have a an undergraduate in criminal law. I have a graduate degree in, you know, data and analysis. And he goes, I can't get anybody to even open the door for me because I have no experience. And, you know, what I said to him is what you need are people who who will provide you introductions and not just introductions to have conversations, but introductions to tell you what industry practice groups should I be looking at? Is there a networking group I should be looking at? Um, what should I be studying? Because you're correct when the, the closest I could get was my graduate degree in global management. Well, I remember at the time when I was going through this, like, yeah, that's awesome. So now I know HR policy and different countries. Um, oh, macroeconomics. Well, okay. I guess the, you know, the GDP is kind of trade related. You're correct. There's not a lot of training, but there's a lot of courses. So, you know, it's like, are there import courses out there I could take just to learn things? Could I take a classification? course. So find people. I think LinkedIn is a, a great tool. I have to be honest with you for networking because you can reach out to people and if they're willing to talk to you, you know, they might provide introductions or they might provide recommendations to you for different types of courses you can take. Let me tell you, I've taken 
every possible course I could possibly take. Does it make me a subject matter expert in those areas? No, it makes me a generalist. But it is giving me, you know, one piece of education that gets me closer to my goals of having, you know, greater understanding of certain areas. So um, that's probably the best advice that I can give you. I mean, this gentleman that I mentioned to you, I actually linked up with him. And I have provided him introductions to people I know who will be willing and open to being forwardly honest with him and to provide him introductions, but to give him a direction to focus on. And will they provide him, you know, introductions for a job? I don't know, but he's going to be that much closer to what his desire is and his goals are, which is to at least start and focus in an area that he has a desire to build his career on. Excellent. That's great. That, that is perfect because I remember being in those shoes of, okay, great. I got a little piece of paper that says I spent a lot of money on an education. What do I do now? <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it's really intimidating. Um, and th- I guess the message that we want to send to everyone is that we, and most people I know are open to, you know, talking about their job and, and trying to get you in touch with, with people that might help you along the way. And so don't be intimidated is I guess is the, the the overarching theme here that just reach out and, and see what you can find because it, that's what is required to get into this type of field. Yeah, we have to be bold. We have to be willing to ask and talk to people. Um, you know, it's like uh, a lot of people are very intimidated by trying to get a mentor who's an executive, whereas it's kind of interesting. It's amazing how many executives are open to being mentors and the ones that are not, those are probably not the ones that would be beneficial to you anyway. But then remember that when you're in a position, right? Mm -hmm. It's pay it forward. You know, if you're in a position like I had so many people help me and give me opportunity. Um, the company that brought me in, you know, where I fell into trade compliance, they had this very entrepreneurial, uh, environment. It was the culture there. It's like, they would say to the chief marketing officer, guess what? You've done an amazing job. You're going to go, you know, be in charge of operations. Now you're going to take your skills and you're going to learn, but you're going to take your skills and you're going to, you're going to change. Had the company not been that way. And then at the time, you know, almost 30 years ago, trade people were set up by you are a U.S. import person. Well, I was fortunate to have a boss who said, you know, you're, you're really good on imports. Let's, let's teach you imports in other countries. You know, you've done a really good job. I'm going to teach you exports in all these countries now. And you know what? I'd really love it if you would run my customs audit that we have going on in Mexico right now. Had I not had people like that who were open to building me up and developing me, you know, I, I wouldn't be where I'm at, but I've taken that and I work on that with other people. I make sure that I'm the same type of person for other people. 
Well, that is a wonderful note to end on, I think, Mary. I appreciate your time over an hour. I know we could we didn't even get to textiles yet, but um, maybe next time. Let's talk about textiles in sure. our next interview. I know you are you have a lot of experience in um, in that field, working for um, a couple different companies, if I remember correctly. And uh, it's it's a complex part of the industry, and wanted to touch on it, but we'll have to say part two of um, Mary Brady's podcast. Um, and we'll just wrap this up for today. I really appreciate your time. It's always great to talk with you and I love how encouraging you are to me and then to everyone who is trying to build a career and starting to build a career I really appreciate that and um, I'm trying to to kind of emulate that I'm trying to encourage people and and give them what they need to excel sounds great